Welcome to the Hurricane Center podcast, produced by the Storm Science Network and part of the National Tropical Weather Conference. This podcast is made possible by USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Tourist Bureau, and Plylock's Hurricane Clips. Great program for you today. This is going to be a really cool show, I think. You're really going to enjoy what we're going to talk about today. We're going to fly into some hurricanes and uh, you know, you've heard some of the stories about flying into Ian. We're going to talk a little bit about that and a lot more. But before we get started, let's get over to the former director of the National Hurricane Center, our host this morning, Mr. Bill Reed. Good morning, Bill. Morning, Tim. Thanks for the intro and uh, the words for our sponsors. And I am looking forward to our next time down on the island there. Uh, yes, we're going to have a, a interesting show today. I'm going to give you a brief intro of who our guests are and then let them explain what it is they do and then we'll get into the Q&A. Uh, uh, first, we have Dr. Heather Holbach. Uh, she's a member of the research facility at Florida State's University Center for Ocean Atmospheric Prediction Studies. I bet she always calls it COAPS because that's a long name. And a Northern Gulf Institute Cooperative Institute employee with NOAA's uh, Atlantic Oceanographic and Meteorological Laboratory, uh, AOML, and the Hurricane Research Division. Uh, we have uh, 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 Bob Rogers, who's the lead meteorologist on the observations team at HRD. And his, his areas of studies get down into the smaller scale features, which are kind of my bag too. So I'm always interested in what he's learning. Uh, and he does a lot of flying in hurricanes on the NOAA P3, he's doing that. And then we have Davis White. He's a meteorologist with uh, the 53rd Weather Reconnaissance Squadron. Uh, which is more commonly known as the Hurricane Hunters and has been in that role for five or four years. Uh, probably seems like five as busy as the seasons have been. Uh, so, uh, uh, Heather, why don't you first uh, uh, take the first lead in telling us what it is you are involved in and, and uh, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for having me. So, my focus uh, with HRD and FSU for the past several years has been trying to improve surface wind measurements from the Hurricane Hunter aircraft. So I focus uh, largely on the SFMR. I'm working on uh, always trying to learn more about how it works, how we can improve it, so that we can get the most accurate and reliable surface wind observations from that instrument. And I also focus on other areas of uh, surface waves, things related to the air-sea interface, uh, trying to understand more about how the tropical cyclones get their energy and how we can better observe those processes. I've flown with the NOAA Hurricane Hunters since 2013, so it's been a little while since I've been on the planes, not quite as long as Rob, but I've uh, got you know, quite a few storms under my belt now and almost 100 hurricane eyewall penetrations, so... Um, some great experiences, and I've learned a lot up there. Okay, fascinating. Uh, Rob, why don't you give us a, a touch of that, and uh, good to see you again. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Uh, great to be here, and thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, so like Heather, I also work at the Hurricane Research Division in Miami. Uh, I have been there for uh, quite a bit longer than I guess Heather's <laughs> been associated with HRD since the late 1990s, but uh, a lot of the work that I've been doing is uh, to collect observations from the aircraft and to use those uh, observations to better understand uh, tropical cyclone processes, you know, things that, that determine whether a storm will intensify and rapidly intensify. And, and so I'll, a little bit later, perhaps I'll, I'll have a chance to show some uh, 
some images of the types of data that we collect and how we use that data to really better understand and ultimately predict uh, you know, whether a storm's going to get stronger and where it's going to go and what kind of uh, impacts it's going to have when it makes landfall. So that's a real key part of what we do at HRD, and so it's something I'm real happy to be a part of. Cool. And uh, Davis, you probably have bore the brunt of a lot of these flights. You guys fly the, the, the standard, as they call them, uh, reconnaissance missions that we all uh, look forward to seeing when there's a storm threatening in there. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So uh, I joined the unit in uh, 2019 and uh, just starting my fourth season now. Uh, my training season was actually 2020, so the record-breaking season. So uh, I've seen plenty of storms, even though I've only been doing it a couple of years. And uh, I'm excited today to join everybody and talk specifically about Hurricane Ian because um, I actually got to spend some time down at the National Hurricane Center uh, this year. And I sort of watched Hurricane Ian from the very beginning all the way until it made landfall, I went back to Mississippi and started flying the storm. So um, Hurricane Ian's pretty personal to me. I sort of watched it grow up um, from a small little blip on the, uh, the computer model all the way until it made landfall. So I'm super excited to share my experience and uh, hear the stories of others as well today. All right, fascinating. We've got a, a lot of interest in there. I, um, on the uh, for, uh, question that uh, any of you might answer, but for since you brought it up, Heather, I'm uh, interested on the uh, SFMR, uh, are the upgrades you're looking at uh, mostly software related or, or are there hardware changes in the, in, in the, in the offing? As of right now, we're mostly focused on the software side. So over the last uh, several hurricane seasons, as we've been observing more and more of these major hurricanes, the forecasters at the Hurricane Center started noticing some differences between the observations from the SFMR and drop sons and some of the other metrics that they've used for estimating surface winds. And we so that kind of prompted this project to look a little bit closer at what's going on within the SFMR algorithm at these really high winds. Now that we have a lot more observations there uh, since the previous algorithm was updated in the mid-2010s. So that's uh, the main focus is more on the software side. We're also learning a lot more about how it's behaving in heavy rain. And we think that there might be some more corrections that need to be made uh, to account for the heavy rain. So we, we're learning a lot, but... Um, still have a little bit of ways to go until we can really have a good grasp on how to uh, update that software. Yeah, it seems like, to me, it always seemed like that's an incredibly difficult uh, process. For one thing, it, uh, it's hard to come up with uh, other corroborating ad, uh, observations right on the deck to tell you how good your, your winds are. What, what do you advertise as, a, as a, 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 a potential range of accuracy on your observations from the SFMR? So the accuracy we generally say is about three to four meters per second. Um, it changes every time that we update the algorithm depending upon the data set we have to train it on, which right now is on dropsons, uh, which are very <coughs> difficult to match up with the SFMR, especially in these really high winds because they move with the wind. So they move away from where the SFMR is observing. Um, but I'm hopeful that we'll actually be able to improve that accuracy with the next algorithm update because we're going to try and use a new instrument that's flown on the P3s called IRAP 
that's observing directly in the same location that the SFMR is observing in. So that should hopefully help improve the accuracy. Interesting. Do you, uh, do you see any uh, opportunity to use the, the, the sail drone that's uh, now being deployed as, a, as another uh, 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 tool in a toolkit, so to speak, to estimate the wind? Well, if the, the tricky part with the sail drones is there's only a few of them. So it's hard to get a lot of matchups between the two, but we have been trying to overfly them uh, whenever we get the chance. The thing that I find most fascinating from the sail drones is the videos. They're, it's very difficult to see visually what's happening near that ocean surface, especially in these really high winds, because <clears throat> ships can't go in there or they shouldn't. And uh, buoys typically uh, have a hard time in those conditions as well. So these videos are some of our first glimpses at what that you know, near surface layer actually looks like and getting a better understanding of what's actually happening there, I think, is probably one of the more valuable aspects of what we're going to be able to learn from the sail drone. Yeah, it brings back, I watch those sail drones, I almost feel like taking a drama meeting because the, the, the two years I flew with the Navy in 1972 and three, we were still uh, naively flying below cloud base uh, in some of those high winds. So I got to see pretty close view of what the ocean state looks like in a really high wind environment. And uh, I'm just amazed that they can build a, a vessel that small that can withstand those forces. Yeah, it's really impressive and really awesome that they've been so successful already. I'm going to come back to you in a while on the, the air-sea interface and how that trend, how that all transpires, because that's something I, not, I don't know much about. I'm sure a lot of other people are interested. But, uh, Rob, you said... Uh, you're, you're really working on the observations that might prove very useful for the rapid intensification aspect. I know when, when I retired 10 years ago, that was still a frustration point that our skill in real-time forecasting of that was almost seeing it start and give them, you got a 12-hour window to catch it, not, not something you're going to capture too far in advance. And uh, So why don't you tell us a little bit about how, how that's, that's going? Yeah, so we, uh, we have been making, I, I think, some, some measurable progress on our ability to predict uh, rapid intensification. Um, if you look at some of the statistics from the Hurricane Center, and, you know, even now in, in the past few years, they're actually explicitly predicting, predicting RI, as we call it. So that's, uh, that's pretty impressive to actually go out on a limb and predict it. And, you know, so I, I think there has been improvement, but I think there are uh, a lot of, of, of ways to go. And, and so a lot of our focus is really looking at the conditions that, that help to determine whether or not a, a tropical cyclone or tropical storm, let's say, uh, has the potential to undergo RI. So, you know, the factors that determine intensification are, are you know, they cover a multitude of, of spatial and temporal scales, right? Ranging from, you know, environmental scale, thousands of kilometers, you know, vertical wind shear, trough interactions, and so forth, to, you know, coming down to the vortex scale and even the smaller scale convective features and turbulence and microphysics. So, you know, to be able to understand how a storm intensifies, you have to under you have to observe and understand all of those interactions uh, across scales, and so it's a very complicated process. And that's, I think, part of the reason why progress on their forecast has been uh, relatively slow, certainly slower than the track improvement. But I think we are making progress, and so a lot of our emphasis is looking at 
uh, at least at HRD with the data that we collect from the aircraft is focused on the vortex structure, right? So the scale of, you know, 100 kilometers or so, the scale that we actually sample the storm. And so, you know, we have a variety of instruments, uh, including what Heather's talking about with the SFMR, but also the tail Doppler radar is a really important instrument that we use. It kind of gives you, a, 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 like, it's like a CAT scan, right, if you will. It lets you look at what the inner core structure of the wind field looks like. And so for these weaker systems, you know, they're the ones that typically undergo RI. And so we uh, try to get a, a look with the, with the tail Doppler radar, the TDR, which will tell us how organized or disorganized the storm is. And so if it's, if it's a vertically aligned column from the surface up to, you know, 50,000 feet, it's going to intensify if it's not already intensified. But if it's... You know, if you have a circulation at one location and then, you know, a, a couple thousand feet above it, it's, you know, 100 kilometers displaced, it's not really organized yet. So it has to become organized. And so what's that process? And so a lot of our research at HRD and a lot of my personal research is looking at those processes to determine, you know, is this storm going <coughs> to align, if you will, become a vertically stacked system? And if it is, if it's going to align and the environment's favorable, warm waters, low vertical wind shear and so forth, then it's likely going to intensify and probably rapidly intensify. But it's that that transition from a misaligned to an aligned state that's really, I think, key to understanding whether or not a system may undergo RI. Uh, that's that's very interesting. I've, I've kind of gotten the impression uh, uh, since I've actually been following this for almost 20 years now that uh, we're getting a pretty good handle on the, env the environmental scale uh, uh, features you want to look at, and the models have gotten sufficiently better at that, that that within reason we're getting pretty good estimates of what the environment will be like throughout the forecast cycle that that we're, we're looking at now. Uh, right. But it seems like we still have a long way to go on understanding and, and and measuring what's going on at the vortex scale. Is that is that correct, or you think you're making real headway on that? No, that's that's a great point. And in terms of the predictive side, right? So a lot of the predictions rest on numerical models, computer models, and so those are initial value problems, which mean you have to have a, a you know, you start with an initial state and you integrate equations of motion forward in time. But it's the, the skill of a forecast and a model is, to a large extent, dependent on how well you specify that initial state. And so that's what you're getting at, Bill, in terms of. You know, it, it, in the models have to accurately represent what the structure of the vortex looks like. So, is it misaligned? Is it aligned? Um, sometimes, you know, the models, at least in the past, like you know, H warp, which is the, you know, the the main hurricane <coughs> model that we use in the U.S., for the longest time, they just assumed that every vortex was aligned, and it, clearly, a lot of times it wasn't. We would go out there with the planes and see it wasn't. So, there's been a lot of effort toward improving how we specify the initial condition in the model through data simulation. Is the big uh, you know, method that we use for that. And so there's a lot of effort going toward improving our capability to take the data that we collect from the plane or from satellites or any observation really, but focusing on planes here, get that data to the ground in real time and get that information assimilated into the model to better tell the model what the vortex really looks like. And then, you know, the I, the idea, at least a hypothesis, is that then the, the forecast will be better. And I think we are, again, seeing improvements. I think, uh, you know, there's been a lot of study looking at the, the impact of the tail Doppler radar, for example, on the forecasts with HWARF. And what we found is that weaker systems actually you see the biggest benefit because those are the ones where it could be misaligned. And so, you you know, if you don't know what the structure looks like in the model, then you're not going to know what the, you know, the forecast is going to be. It's going to be a lot less accurate. So by getting this information to the ground in real time from the aircraft and, and incorporating that to the models, it's really, I think, helped them to make better forecasts. 
yeah, I've, I've seen in a lot of the, the TCDs, the discussions from the specialist, uh, they explicitly mention how that uh, the data that's been collected by you guys and, and running the model has given them yeah. more confidence or less confidence, depending on the structure mm -hmm. that comes out as to what the storm will do next. Yep. I'm going to get back to you in a minute. Uh, so Davis, uh, 2020 was a kind of a baptism of fire <laughs> at... Uh, I think there were more storms in 2020 than the entire two seasons I worked <laughs> when I flew them. So that that's quite a bit. Uh, 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 what what in your background uh, got you focused to coming into the, the hurricane hunters? Yeah, so uh, I majored in meteorology in school and uh, enjoyed doing that. But the Air Force had uh, other wishes for me to start my career. Um, but I'm very fortunate for those because I got to do an operations job where I was dealing with a lot of equipment. Um, used to operate ICBMs, and so um, that skill set, that being on an airplane and, and taking data and passing it to the people that need it, um, that's the bread and butter of operators that do jobs like the Hurricane Hunters, and so I felt like I was unknowingly prepared for the job, and so uh, when uh, we saw the opportunity open up at the Hurricane Hunters, uh, of course, I jumped at the chance, and um, 2020 was definitely baptism by fire for sure. Um, it was a very busy season, so... Um, flew a lot of storms and saw a lot of things and um yeah it's just so great to be here today talking with everyone um the coolest part to me is that we get to see that every storm does have a unique thumbprint and just to hear how we're trying to use technology to assimilate that uh, unique character of each storm to get better predictions is really encouraging and super interesting to me so um super pleased to be here today yeah i'm glad to have you because there's i get questions from people all the time about the nature of the squadron and all that. How many meteorologists are assigned to the 53rd? I think we have about 22, 23 slots. Mm -hmm. So, and and uh, are they mostly uh, full time now, or are a lot of them reservists that serve time when when available? Yeah, it's about half and half. Um, but of course, you know, uh, even our reserve, our part time reservists like I am, we spend a significant amount of time there. So uh, we're all trying to work as hard as we can to uh, help the mission go smoothly. Fascinating, uh, uh, and you have you still have like twenty aircraft, I believe. Uh, ten. There's ten. Oh, ten aircraft. So you got well manned for the for the size of the squadron in there. Uh, anything new coming up as far as the equipment you have on the on the uh, C one thirties? Yeah, we we've had a lot of software upgrades uh, in the last couple of years. Those have been really helpful um, in ensuring that you know from start to finish we don't lose any data along the way. That's been huge for us. So getting uh, getting all the computers upgraded, some new hardware. Um, we're also looking at getting more uh, connectivity interactions. So we've got some broadband internet stuff coming down the pipeline that'll allow us to send even more data even faster from the aircraft. Um, and it sounds like uh, you know, listen to Rob and Heather that they want more data, more faster. So uh, the more that we can do that, I think it'll be better for everyone. I've never heard, ever heard a researcher say he needs less data. Just doesn't <laughs> happen. <laughs> uh, what, uh, what's, what's been your most memorable storm so far? Um, honestly, it was Hurricane Ian. Um, it's certainly the biggest storm that I've flown so far. Um, I've flown a lot of the smaller systems, you know, invests and tropical cyclones and uh, tropical storms. That's mostly what I've flown. But um, Hurricane Ian was the strongest storm I've seen. Um, and like I mentioned a little earlier, I, I had sort of a unique perspective. I was working at the National Hurricane Center in the CARCA office, 
um, handling data from the airplanes and delivering it to the forecasters on the ops floor. And that was a fascinating experience. But when we saw um, what eventually turned into Hurricane Ian pop up on the computer models, it was just fascinating to see the forecasters talk about it and and start to write their discussions and, and see all that data come in. And then I got the opportunity to fly the storm um, about halfway on its way to the U.S. Um, I flew back from Miami to Mississippi and got to fly the storm uh, twice. So it was really cool to see from start to finish uh, the entire cyclogenesis process as well as um, the landfall and then the, the secondary landfall as well. So Ian is definitely my most her uh, memorable hurricane experience so far. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, point that you were uh, able to spend time at the Hurricane Center to, to, to see what the, the, the uh, process is, what the environment that the, the, the team goes through there and making the forecast and probably got a handful of taste of, of the tremendous amount of decision support demand that comes into the building. Oh my goodness, those guys work so hard. Um, those guys and girls are just incredible uh, professionals. They're top of their game. Um, is really cool to watch because um, you know I'm on the plane I'm taking the data we're getting bounced around I you know I think about these questions but I don't really have time to like let my brain wander off thinking about the the structure of the the hurricane and is it tilting and stuff like that um, and it's just cool to see everyone else asking those questions making those decisions um, with the data that, that we collect on the planes that was a, a really great experience for me yeah it's come a long way it, it, when I was doing it, you, you had a radio operator, you had a coded message that he had to read over and over again until he had 100% copy. There's not much data got transferred really in real time that way, other than the vortex message. Uh, okay, let's talk a little bit about Ian. Uh, 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 we heard a lot on the news about some really uh, violent turbulence as the, the, the storm went through its eyewall replacement right before landfall. and. Uh, 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 you guys, I think some of your crews were actually flying out of Ellington over here because of its approach to to the airports there. Cause I rem it, uh, the flight path into Ellington goes right over my house, and I, I know that sound of those engines running outside. Yeah, yeah, it's a weather plane, you know. So uh, 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 I guess I'll uh, ask, ask Heather, did you fly uh, Ian at all? I did, but it was actually Rob who was on the flight that had some of the extreme turbulence. Okay. Uh, I flew the night before, and we, you know, we uh, observed the beginning of that eyewall replacement cycle on our flight and had, you know, a little bit of turbulence. Um, but it was really after that eyewall replacement cycle finished, and uh, the next plane was in there with Rob on it, that it was really intensifying and causing a lot of that extreme turbulence. Yeah, uh, Rob, I, I I was looking at the at the data too, and what I could see at home obviously is not the same as you're looking at. But I was amazed at all the lightning, and and from the the the, the ADAD radars it looked like a constantly changing uh, structure of the eye wall. Is, is that is that a reasonably correct interpretation? Yeah, it was a very much uh, a rapidly evolving situation. Uh, so we were on the, the mission right after the one that Heather, so we we're on 12 hour cycles, right? So mm -hmm. our flight took off, I think it was 4 a.m. Um, local time out of Ellington, you know, so it took a couple hours to get across the Gulf, um, of course. And then when we got to Ian, it was um, definitely looking pretty impressive, um, uh, but you know, we didn't really fully appreciate how turbulent it was gonna be. So. 
our, our pattern called for us to come in on the west side and just do a west to east pass through the center and then we were going to go kind of downwind along the coast and then come back in the plan that was at least in the go come back in from i think it was north to south through the center and get basically two looks at the center uh at 90 degrees to each other that first pass coming in on the west uh it, it looked like it was you know you could definitely see that it was you know well organized of course and we knew from you know the previous missions and, and also from the satellite that it was looking pretty pretty nice but uh, you know, we didn't, I, I just don't think we fully expected what we were going to encounter. And so, uh, you know, the actual inbound leg, uh, you know, I've been doing this for a long time, uh, you know, so 250 plus penetrations, I guess. And so I've had some turbulence and, and, and I have to say that the turbulence that we hit, I don't know if Davis was on similar flight, because I know there was an Air Force flight that was in there around the same time. And I think they got hit pretty hard too. But in our case, you know, there's different types of turbulence, right? So there's kind of the, 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 the pitch and the roll and sort of the bouncing, the up and down and the updrafts and downdrafts. But then there's also other motions that the plane can take as you're going through that eye wall. And so we did hit some of the up and down, but what really was the most, I don't know if the troubling is a word, but was the most caught my attention, which I hadn't really experienced ever before, was this kind of side to side motion, a yawing, I guess it was. And so Others that have that had similar experiences call it fishtailing. So I guess you just imagine like the fish, like the tail of the fish is sort of flopping around. And so the plane was doing that a lot as we were making that penetration through the eyewall. You know, anytime you make an eyewall penetration, of course, you're going from very high winds, very strong horizontal winds to, you know, it drops off very quickly as you go into the eye and the, and the winds drop off very fast. And so there's a lot of shear across that, that you know, a very short amount of time and distance. But this one was it just seemed like it was even more pronounced and it lasted for a lot longer uh which you know to me was very i don't know it just really rattled me in a sense and so we we did make it in obviously and we got into the center and then one of the hallmarks actually of this mission and one of the main goals was to launch uh, an unmanned system a small un unmanned uncrewed aerial system um called the altius and so that's a system that we launched from the plane and it's just it's a little bit bigger than drops on but it has wings on it and it has an engine right and so it, and it's remotely controlled so there's a, essentially a pilot on the plane and that pilot you know we, we launched the altius when we were in the center and then we were able to pilot that for about two hours it actually stayed airborne uh so we're communicating with it from the plane to the altius as it's descending and of course the nice thing about a, a platform or an instrument like that is it's uncrewed so we can get it got down to you know thousand feet even 500 feet above this the ocean before it's splashed and so places that you know crewed aircraft you know would never want to go and i certainly never want to go there but anyway so we were in the center and we launched the altius and you know you have to establish communications and so that takes some time so we're essentially circling in the center waiting to establish communications with that altius system which took a couple minutes. As we're doing that, we're looking at the radars on the plane. And so, Bill, like you said, it was rapidly evolving. We could see that that eye wall was continuing to contract on us as we're, you know, so basically it felt like it was collapsing in on us. And we, you know, it's like, let's get out of here is kind of my feeling at least. But, you know, we did wait until we were you know, ensured that we had established communication. And then, then we started to, you know, proceed on an outbound leg to get out of the storm. Uh, so we went off to the northeast, and then we, you know, we went up and loitered a little bit, like northwest of the center, uh, just kind of reassessing what we were doing and, you know, the status of the plane and so forth. But the whole time, you know, the Altius is flying, right? So we're tracking that, and, and you know, it's actually going down into the eye wall, and I think it's circled in the eye a little bit, and then it went to the eye wall. I, I can show you a figure if you want to see it, like the path of the Altius. It actually swept around to that western eye wall. 
And so it, it measured, I think, winds of over 215 miles per hour at about 2,000 feet above the surface. Um, wow. Yeah, so that's, you know, that's where we went through that western side. So that's where all that action was. And we actually have radar analyses, too, that showed um, a similar type of magnitude of wind speed. Yeah. Um, anyway, so what we measured from the radar was consistent with what we saw from the Altius aircraft, and it was just a very, uh, you know, very scary, I guess, <laughs> environment that we were in. But, you know, yeah. great so. success with the Altius mission. We didn't complete the P3 mission because we, you know, we just wanted to get out at that point, but we figured we got the great data with the Altius and uh, so, you know, I think in that sense, it was a great success. Wow. So, so Davis, were you, were you on the Air Force plane uh, trying to beat up the wings? <laughs> uh, we saw quite a bit of turbulence on our flight. I think uh, I was on the flight that was bridging the gap between uh, Heather and Rob. So I didn't see the worst of the turbulence, but I got my fair share of it. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and both your flights, I assume they were all done at 700 millibars at that point? Yes. We were at 8,000 feet, I think. I think the Air Force, yeah. you guys were at 10,000. Is that right, I recall? That sounds correct. Yeah. And so, Bill, one other kind of funny anecdote, I guess, from our mission, you know, there was an Air Force flight. I guess it was not the one Davis was on, but there was an Air Force flight that was in there when we were in there, and they reported, I think, extreme turbulence. But our yeah. pilot, after we landed, uh, relayed a story. He was talking to the Air Force, and the pilot, you know, we'd launched the Altius, you know, the unmanned system and everything like that. And so the pilot said, our pilot said to the Air Force pilot that, yeah, we're, we're bugging out. We're going home. Uh, we just launched the Altius, the drone. Um, and so we're getting out. And the Air Force pilot said back, oh, that drone can have it. He had a colorful term in there, but he's like, the drone can have it. Like, we're out. <laughs> I can imagine. That's how I felt. So uh, uh, it's probably too early to have totally digest the data, but did anything from all the data you guys gathered, either either Heather or Rob, uh, show anything very uh, uh Enlightening as to what was going on with the storm then. Um, well, you want to go ahead there? Yeah. So, so I flew a series of three flights, um, and Ian. The first one was uh, just before it became a hurricane. It was really just starting to organize. And uh, one of the things I found really interesting on that flight was we got out there, and uh, what surprised us was there was almost an eye wall that had formed already. And Rob's flight before that, it was still quite unorganized. So it had already started organizing very quickly. And then the next two flights, one was just uh, south of Cuba and the next one was north of Cuba. It seemed like Ian was on this very regular, almost 24 hour cycle of eyewall replacement uh, cycles. Mm -hmm. And um, to see that happen twice in two missions uh, was pretty interesting. And the fact that we saw that the night before the flight that Rob was just talking about um, was pretty interesting to then see how quickly and how much it continued to intensify after that. So um, usually, you know, you don't see that kind of regular eyewall replacement cycle timing in storms and with Ian we definitely saw you know almost a 24-hour cycle which seemed pretty quick to me yeah, yeah that, that, that sorry if I could just respond to Heather because that's an interesting point she's making it reminds me of Hurricane Irma because I also flew in Hurricane Irma and you know you all probably recall that storm too uh, Irma was a case 
sounds like Ian is similar, where you know normally you think of eye, you know secondary eyewall formation, right, and then eyewall replacement cycles. But usually that 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 during that period of storms, intensification usually pauses, might even weaken slightly as that outer eyewall forms, and then it resumes intensification as it contracts. But in the case of Irma, and perhaps it sounds like in the case of Ian too, you get these regular eyewall replacement cycles and they don't do anything to slow down the intensification. It's like the environment or something is just so favorable that it just, like the storm doesn't even care that it's undergoing an eyewall replacement cycle. It's just, it's taken off. And that's, I think, kind of what we saw with Ian too. Huh. It must, I wonder what's causing that. Something, something is unstable uh, yeah. and it takes a, it, it only takes a little bit of time when it's that unstable before the the stabilized new eye wall starts collapsing and a new one forms. I don't even remember actually seeing much evidence of the slow growth of an outer eye wall and a collapse of the inner one. It just seemed to go very quickly. Is, is that was I seeing that right, or is, is you mean in the case of Ian? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And in the case of Irma, we, we found these rapid, like over this course of six hours, like you'd have a full, you know, typically it like might take 12 to 24 hours, like the classic model of what an ERC looks like. But in the case of Irma, and it sounds like Ian too, they were just very quick. And there's something, and that's a research question, I think, you know, mm -hmm. it's uh, like, like David said, every storm has its own thumbprint. And this is another case of this one was unique in that these very rapid eyewall replacement cycles, and it just it didn't slow it down at all in terms of its intensification. Yeah, well, that brings me back to a question I, I wrote down as when Heather was introducing her, the uh, air sea interaction aspects of it. Ian was crossing the most uh, uh, high octane ocean uh, uh, temperatures uh, available at that time of the year on that path. Uh, how how do you think that played a role in Ian, uh, Heather? Well, one of the things I really remember when we were trying to understand where Ian might go was that the further north it would, would go, the weaker it was likely to be, and the further south it stayed, the stronger it was likely to be. And a lot of that was because of the ocean temperature um, structure that's that was present in the Gulf of Mexico at that time. Um, right in that area near north of Cuba and near the Florida Straits, we typically see the loop current, which is usually associated with really warm waters. And so by Ian staying further south, it had access to that warmer water. And it was still early enough in the season that that warm water was really deep. And so it was basically a limitless supply of energy for the storm. And the other thing about it staying further south is it stayed further away from the wind shear that would have caused it to weaken if it had gone more up towards me up in Tallahassee, for instance. Um, and so it was that the combination of those two factors that I think really played a, a big role in Ian's ability to continue to intensify. Fascinating. So have you, have you learned anything re different recently or or on exactly how the mechanism of the transfer of heat from the from the ocean into a hurricane uh, transpires? Well, I know we've collected a lot more observations that are gonna help us really understand that more. And uh, some of those are, we've done a lot of ocean profiling. Um, we release uh, airborne expendables from the plane that can uh, measure this, the ocean temperature as they um, descend through the ocean 
And um, I think that these, you know, SUAS that Rob was mentioning, the LTS, I think those are going to be some of the big keys in helping us really get an even better grasp on what's happening at that interface. Um, one of the things that we're really trying to understand is how sea spray impacts the transfer of energy. So there's some indication that uh, you can get uh, changes in that energy transfer depending on how much sea spray is in the air and then how many bubbles actually get mixed into the ocean water itself as well. And how that can impact some of the transfer coefficients that go into the modeling. And by improving our understanding of what's happening there, that information can be translated to the models, which is one of their weaker points right now. And um, improving that information in the models, I think, will help us really uh, improve intensity forecasts for tropical cyclones and probably track even. Interesting. Uh, a lot was me uh, made of the similarity between the track and evolution of Charlie in 2004, a much smaller hurricane. And like David said, it's a different thumbprint. It, and it, it probably led to part of the uh, catastrophe on the human side in, in Sanibel and Fort Myers Beach. They went through a Cat 4 with Charlie, uh, didn't get the big storm surge because it was so small. But it, it followed almost the same uh, scenario, uh, rapid intensification after leaving Cuba in there. You guys had a chance to look at the at, at the similarities there and see if there's anything to be learned? Uh, I would say, Bill, that's an awesome point and, and, that, and that's a real emphasis uh, that we're taking now with our field program, right? So for the 15, 20 years or so, our focus was just on intensity. We had a, we have an experiment called IFEX, Intensity Forecasting Experiment, and, and the goal of IFEX <coughs> was to collect data to, to improve intensity forecast, but that's just one measure of a storm's impact. And, you know, as, as you're mentioning, right, you compare Charlie to Ian, um, it wasn't the intensity necessarily, the, the, the strongest winds, but it was the size of the wind field. You know, how large was the storm? In the case of Ian, of course, it was a much larger storm, so that has a much larger impact on things like storm surge. And, and so, um, we haven't looked at that yet, but I think that's something that we should start doing at HRD and, and elsewhere in the community is, is to look at, you know, what factors govern the size of the wind field and, and uh, you know, can we predict that better? Because if we can predict how large the wind field is, how asymmetric the wind field is, you know, is it stronger on one side than another? And can we predict that? Then that will allow us to, to better predict things like storm surge, um, rainfall, um, severe weather at landfall, you know, tornadoes and things like that. So those hazards and those impacts, I think, are a real big focus of what we're trying to do with our research in terms of the data that we collect. Yeah, the, the, the size issue has always been a, a challenge to uh, yeah. uh, get to. Uh, I've been hogging the conversation. Tim, what you got? <laughs> you know, I love being a fly on the wall in this conversation because it's just terrific to listen. But I'm kind of an experiential learner. And, and Heather, you, you've got some video that you... Uh, that you can share, I think. I kind of want to take us inside the storm, and, and you've done that with some video, so can you show us that? Yeah, sure. Let me share my screen. Um, can you see that? Yes. Right. So, yeah, so this video is a time-lapse video of our first pass through Ian uh, the on our last flight in, so the one we were talking about earlier before the all the turbulence happened, and uh, this just is an example of 
what it looks like as we're flying through. So with this flight, remember I said there was a, an eyewall replacement cycle happening. So you'll see kind of that heavy rain streaking across uh, the window. And then it'll lighten up here. So that first streaking area was the outer eyewall that was forming. And then you'll see a little bit more rain show up uh, soon on this video, denoting right here the inner eyewall. And then one of the most fascinating parts for me is this point where you just break into the eye and it goes super calm usually. And you'll see we're turning to try and fix the eye, but here's what it looked like uh, in the eye of Ian the night before it made landfall. So you kind of had a little bit of that stadium effect uh, going on and the nice clear sky above you. And sometimes you can even see all the way down to the ocean uh, surface. But then of course we always have to go back out so uh, you see the clouds start to close in on you, and then all of a sudden you're usually back in some pretty heavy rain fairly quickly on, on your way out. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah, Tim, we got to get you up on one of those flights. <laughs> one of these days it's going to happen. We'll get a good one that's not coming to me. I like that idea. So, you know, as we watch this and then, you know, let it keep playing. And then, Rob, you mentioned the word troubling when you were talking about a couple of the instances in Ian. And, yeah, you've flown into these uh, 250 eye penetrations. What does troubling mean to you? Right? You know, to most of us, that's an oh crap moment, I think. And, <laughs> yeah, but what does that mean? Well, it just means for me, it was not an experience that I had had before. So this was the, you know, people have asked me, and again, maybe I'm, I don't mean to over-dramatize, I guess, but, you know, whenever I get talks like this, they say, oh, is it scary? Uh, and I, I've i always said it's, you know, it's turbulence, but I have confidence in the in the crew and the planes, and, and I, I do have confidence in the crew and the planes. They're amazing. But this is probably the first time where I can honestly say that I was, I was a little bit scared. And it, maybe it's just because I'd never encountered that type of motion on the aircraft before. Um, I do know that this has happened in the past, not to me, but you know, there was a Hurricane Hugo flight where um, they, the, the aircraft came in, I think at a lower altitude, but the storm was rapidly intensifying. They hit severe turbulence. Um, they lost an engine actually. And, uh, and we didn't lose an engine at least, but uh, you know, so I know that it, it has happened before, but at least for me, it was that motion, that side to side motion that I mean, maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe it's common, but it just is, I had never experienced it before. I do know that um, the flight crew that I was with, the aircraft commander and the flight director were also on a P3 mission into Hurricane Patricia. That was an East Pacific hurricane. It, it was actually the strongest storm ever recorded in history and also the most rapidly intensifying storm in history. And they were on a mission when it was undergoing RI, and they had severe turbulence then too. Um, they said that this experience with Ian uh, was at least as bad, if not worse, than what they experienced in Patricia. So for what it's worth, at least, you know, it was a pretty uh, significant event for them as well. So I guess that, that's how I would characterize it. It was just, you know, and I've been on flights where we've hit, uh, been struck by lightning, you know, we've hit, uh, you know, extreme turbulence, you know, and we had to abort a mission and things like that. But Again, it was that that side to side fishtailing, I guess, which was the most. Yeah, that, that side to side, side to side to me would would indicate that <clears throat> the, the turbulence you were getting was was at along the flight level rather than vertical. Uh, yeah, kind of eddies in the eye wall. 
Yeah, that's exactly. There were these mesovortices that, that you could see in the satellite imagery. And so one of the things that, you know, the, the nice thing, the cool thing about our capabilities now in the aircraft is, you know, the communications with the ground. And so we can X-chat, you know, with people on the ground. And so, you know, we did that, that pass through and then we went back out and then we were trying to come back in. We thought about trying to come back in and do another pass later. But, you know, we knew that we had passed through a mesovortex, you know, this eddy that you're describing. That was probably what gave all that shear and that probably the fishtailing. But, you know, we're talking to people on the ground who are looking at the ground radar and the satellite, which we can't really look at easily on the plane. And they're saying, oh, there's another mesovortex that's rotating around. And it's basically right where we're, we're coming in is where it's going to, we're going to hit it again on the eyewall, on the inbound. And I was like, I'm not going to get into a race with a mesovortex at this point. I was like, yeah, I think we're done. <laughs> That's just that's that's important at this point. We accomplished our mission with the Altius. Um, I think that's good, and so we ended up you know ending the mission at that point. But um, yeah, I think probably there was something to do with those eddies in the eye wall that it was probably the, the cause of those uh, that motion on the aircraft. Wow. And Davis, what about you? What about the the overall experience for you? You know, you've been doing it for a few years now. Uh, have you had a couple of those moments when you go, "Am I sure I want to do this?" <laughs> yeah, um, I think you've got to have a couple wires crossed in your brain to do this job. Uh, I don't think anybody would disagree with that. But um, again, we have the utmost confidence and uh, uh, trust in our in our pilots and in and, and the rest of the air crew. Um, there have been moments where I've really had to lean on those that had more experience and just say, hey, is this normal? Because you're trying to understand sort of as... Uh, Rob was saying, you're trying to build this uh, memory in your brain of what's normal and what's not. And then when you see something that's uh, out of the ordinary or something, you feel something, if you feel the airplane move in a way that you haven't felt before, uh, some bells start to go off and you start asking questions like, hey, does everybody feel good? And um, one thing that I'll say is like, it's, it's really comforting to hear uh, the conversations on the plane. We're always talking about it. We're always confirming with each other. It's an open discussion for flight safety. And so... Um, that's been a, a huge um, builder of my confidence is just to know that if I feel uncomfortable, I feel like I could speak up, people would listen, and we'd have a discussion about it. So, um, But there's been certainly a few times where I've felt something new, and I'll just ping the crew, and I'll ask. I'll say, hey, does, is that normal? Has everybody felt that before? And they're like, yeah, sometimes you'll hit a mesovortice or something like that, and you'll hit a couple weird bumps. Um, but yeah, it's really just been building that... Uh, library in your brain of sort of what normal is supposed to be let me ask one more question about the experience and we'll get back to the building back to some good science questions because i think it's both both sides of this are really interesting and and this is for all three of you really do you do this because you enjoy the flight or is the flight just something you have to do to get the data that you want um you know is it is it i just love flying i love going through that experience or or this is, you know, okay, buckle in, here we go again, but this is what I have to do to get my data. Uh, Heather, you can answer that first if you'd like. For me, it's a bit of both. Um, I grew up flying. I love being in planes. So uh, it was kind of second nature for me to want to have that as part of my career. But, you know, ultimately it really is knowing that the data that we're getting out there to collect is having a direct impact on improving forecasts, helping people better prepare for a landfalling storm. And also I've learned so much by getting out there and actually being able to look out the window and see what's happening. Uh, for me, especially being able to look down and see the sea surface when we're able to and there aren't clouds in the way and see how the sea surface is evolving as the wind speed's changing 
has taught me so much about how the SFMR works and uh, what sort of things I might need to think about when I'm working with the data. And you just have this, you know, more personal connection with the data and it allows you to identify things that you might not normally uh, identify when you're looking at the data by having been out there and it experienced it as the data was being collected. Fascinating. Fascinating. Rob, how about you? Yeah, I mean, I agree 100% with what Heather's saying. You know, it, it, it definitely is a bit of both for me. And um, just to kind of build upon what she's saying, as a scientist, to me, I think the coolest thing in the world, honestly, is the ability to, you know, you have a hypothesis, you think of something, oh, this would be interesting to look at. Um, well, let's get this aircraft and, and mobilize 20 people to fly into this storm to collect data to test my hypothesis, basically. I mean, it's nowhere else in the world can we do this um, on a routine basis and so it, it's it's an awesome opportunity to you know better understand and advance the science and, and then you know most importantly i think like heather said to make better forecasts you know to help people um, prepare um, so it's that combination that, that i think is just uh you know an incredible opportunity that's great and, and david how about you same idea yeah same idea i, I think the largest part of uh what I wasn't expecting uh, after learning the job was just I got so much more appreciation for the folks uh, that do all the warnings and watches and issue the advisories, um, really the ones interfacing with the public. I've, I've grown to really appreciate their perspective as well. Um, you know, it's, it's cool to fly through the storms and to see all those wonderful things, but the people on the ground are really the, the reason that we do all this. And so um, that's not been lost on me. And certainly as I've seen the destruction of some of these storms, uh, that weighs pretty heavy on my heart when I, when I see that. So, um, yeah, that's sort of been the, the big ticket for me, but this has been a dream job of mine since I was a little kid. And, uh, I'm fortunate enough to be able to do it with my wife. She, uh, works as a meteorologist with the hurricane hunters also. So it's cool. a, it's a fun family experience. That's fascinating. The terrific work that you're doing. Bill, jump back in. We got just under 10 minutes to go. So go ahead, Bill. You got a couple more good questions. Yeah, I guess the, the 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 last thing I had written down was, uh, you know, I've I've seen what's witnessed personally what's happened in 50, the last fifty years with weather reconnaissance and research flying. Uh, I don't want to try to push you out that far out in time, but uh, any thoughts on where we might be twenty years from now on what we're doing as far as reconnaissance in the in the storms, Heather? So on the NOAA side, we're actually in the process of uh, determining what our next aircraft is going to be to replace the P3s. Um, a lot of uh, agencies are moving away from P3s, so it's going to be more difficult for us to maintain them and continue flying them. So we're in discussions now about uh, what sort of aircraft we're going to use as our next research and operational platform on the NOAA side. And along with that, we're having some really great discussions about potential uh, instrumentation we might want to consider adding and having the capability to have. And also trying to keep an open mind about uh, the fact that there's probably a lot of instruments and different things we, you know, aren't, that aren't on our minds right now that will uh, come up in the next, you know, 50 years, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, that we want to make sure we have flexibility to be able to incorporate those on these aircraft. So on the NOAA side, that's, you know, one of the really big things that we're um, going through right now. Um, but we're also doing a lot of experimentation with different flight patterns. Uh, a lot of 
studies on how to get the most impact from our observations. And so as you know, research continues on those aspects, I think you'll see some more evolution in how we fly and where we fly, how often, uh, what sort of um, strategies we have for where we release drop sons and other expendable instruments. I think these SUAS are going to play a really big role too in changing the way we observe uh, these storms if we can have some reliable success with them. Um, being able to routinely get that lower level data from them, I think will have a huge impact. Interesting. Rob? I mean, Heather it covers a lot. I, there's not a lot for me to add to what she said, but um, you know, I will say that uh, we are in the process, as Heather mentioned, of, of planning to replace the P3s. And so we're looking at potentially C-130s, um, possibly getting four of those. Um, and, there's an expectation or a desire on the part of the Hurricane Center to have us fly, instead of every 12 hours, fly every six hours, right? So that's you know, more aircraft, a lot more crew and, and, and support for that. Um, there's also a new jet. And so we, we currently have a G4, which you know, flies around 40, 45,000 feet, um, and pr primarily in the environment around the storm, but sometimes it'll overfly a, a weaker system. Uh, but that one's nearing the end of its life cycle, so we actually are in, uh, requiring now a, a new jet, a G550, which should come online in about um, a couple years or so, a year or two, probably two years. Um, so that'll have a lot you know, more capabilities. And like Heather said, we're looking at new instrumentation to put on that uh, aircraft as well as on the, the, the next generation P3s, C-130s. Um, you know, new remote sensors that can look at things like, you know, LIDARs and that can look at you know, winds and, and temperature and moisture uh, in the absence of scatterers, right? So in clear air, essentially. Um, aerosol measurements might be something we want to look at. Uh, the SUA, the uncrewed systems, like Heather mentioned, uh, the Altius, that, you know, that was a demonstration. We had a great success with Ian. So, you know, we're going to keep moving forward with that. And there's other companies that have similar types of, of, of systems that we want to test. Um, there's next generation type of systems. There's uh, like a cluster of, of drones, if you will, that, you know, we're looking into that op opportunity to kind of like a whole cluster of drop signs or, or balloons that can float. So the, the P3 would release this cluster and then you might have like 50 or 100 of them, you know, swarming around like a drone swarm, essentially, that can maybe stay airborne for many hours, you know, long after when the, the, the aircraft have left. So those new types of uncrewed aerial and then ocean systems, you know, we talked about the sail drone, there's a glider system that we have too that can get ocean uh, probes. There's space-borne sensors too. Um, we have, you know, CubeSats now that are, are, are being launched. So they're a lot cheaper than, you know, the multiple millions of tens of hundreds of millions of dollars, actually probably more than that, uh, of these larger satellites here. These smaller, much less expensive uh, satellites that we can launch though, you know, because they're so relatively cheap, we can launch a lot of them and we can have constellations of these CubeSats to get us things like microwave measurements um, much more frequently than what we currently get. So. Uh, there's that kind of next generation spaceborne technology too, and you know that's just looking out probably for the next 10 years. Looking even further down, the, you know there's there have been plans. I don't think I don't know if there's still uh, considerations for this, but like a, a, a next rad in space, so like a Doppler radar, basically like in a geostationary type of orbit, so you can actually get three dimensional winds continuously over an entire ocean basin would be the idea. But that's uh, been in the planning for 20 years, and I don't know how far that's going. But, you know, those are the types of things that we really, really want to look for in terms of, you know, continuous monitoring and sampling of, of the atmosphere and the ocean 
system and incorporating that information in the next generation of numerical models too. Yeah, I think the, the, to tie all that together, the, the, the advancements in communication, I mean, 20 years ago, would you have imagined one of these things doing all that it can do in your hand when it keeps me from getting struck by lightning on the golf course? What the heck? Yeah. Well, but uh, the communication capabilities, the crowdsourcing, it's like constellations of satellites, yeah. all that data in 20 years is going to be uh, real time delivered, I'll bet, from the, the platform to the forecasters and the models. So uh, I can ask. Davis looks young enough. What do you think will be 50 years from now? <laughs> oh, we have a saying in the Air Force called uh, flexibility is the key to air power. And I, I'm not even going to try to make a prediction of what that's going to look like uh, 20 years down the road. But we do know that technology is going to be a, the driving factor. So the more that we can remain flexible and add and take away instrumentation from the airplane is going to be critical to um, giving the forecasters and the researchers the data that they need. So we're just going to focus our efforts in the next five, ten years to stay ahead of the curve, be able to adopt new technologies as they come online, test them out, and um, see, sort of like what Heather said, um, see what instruments give us the most juice for the squeeze, uh, so to speak, and uh, try to find um, what what works best for us to go and collect data with. Interesting. Uh, I, uh uh, do you happen to know, uh, I guess the J models are actually starting to get fairly uh, long in A's. They were in place when I was there. Uh, is there uh, another model of C-130 in, in the planning phases for the squadron down the road, do you know? Yeah, I believe we were the first unit to take delivery of the new J model C-130. So um, we're starting to get a lot of them uh, back from refurbishing. We call it depot. So we're starting to see our airplanes go through a very thorough uh, maintenance overhaul, if you will, of the entire airframe. Um, and they're coming back and they're looking good. So um, as far as longevity is concerned, that's, um, you know, it's, that's what we were looking for with the, the J models. And so that seems like that's what we're getting is the longevity out of them. So um, as far as I know, there's nothing on the horizon. We're just trying to adapt that platform uh, the best. Um, and I think that's what sets us uh, apart the rest of the world is our ability to maintain our equipment. So shout out to all of our maintainers and um, engineers and fabricators that are designing great airplanes for us to use. The, the track record of the, these platforms has been marvelous. And uh, even more marvelous to me is what you all have done and learned and how you've advanced the science. Just to me, it's tremendous. Anything else, Tim? No, I just wanted to thank everybody for, for not just today's program, but for what you do to help us be better prepared during the hurricane season because each and every storm is different and unique, and we only know that because of you being in the middle of them and telling us what's going on. So, uh, Heather, Rob, Davis, thank you for a great program today. Thank you very much. Thanks for having us. You bet. We appreciate having you all here. Bill, thank you, as always, for the insight and the great questions. We appreciate that as well. I want to thank our sponsors who make these programs a reality, USAA. Uh, boy, I tell you what, we can't say thanks enough to the USAA for the work they do for us. The South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, we look forward to seeing everybody on South Padre Island in April for the 2023 National Tropical Weather Conference. The Weather Company, Weather Boy, Walmart, City of Brownsville, Black Magic Design, the Port of Brownsville, Live View, all folks who make these programs a possibility. Next week, we're doing a, a program in Galveston. We're actually going on site 
and we're going to talk about uh, this hurricane season and uh, all things uh, that we've dealt with during this hurricane season. Should be a great program uh, on scene in Galveston next uh, next week. So we hope you'll join us for that. Loved what you've heard on this week's episode? Well, well, the answer is simple. It would mean the world to us if you could head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review and feedback. Spreading the word really is the best way to grow our podcast and achieve even greater things. Thank you. Thank you.